0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Mulholland, and with me is my colleague, Lauren Masucci. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking about corporate bylaws on this Health Law Expressions podcast. It's something that is often an afterthought whenever um, boards are meeting or whenever hospitals have their legal counsel revise their medical staff bylaws and related documents. But corporate bylaws are a very important document because they provide the framework, the governance framework for the entire organization. Uh, A lot of states require an annual review of corporate bylaws, but most people forget about that, or if they do, they put them in front of the board at the end of a meeting, the board says everything looks fine, and they move on to something else. We're here to suggest today that you ought to be taking a close look at your corporate bylaws, especially if they have not been reviewed or updated in a while, because there's a number of things that the law requires, that regulations require, and also, just as importantly, they need to sync up with the medical staff bylaws. Lauren, you do a lot of medical staff bylaws work. Uh Do you oftentimes see corporate bylaws forgotten about or
1: I do, Dan. They're always uh, forgotten about. And where you can get into trouble is with respect to typically in the uh, corporate bylaws, there's a medical staff article. And uh, lots of times... If you're going when I'm doing a bylaws revision project, when I'm done with that revision project, I like to say to the client, let's pull out your corporate bylaws and look at that medical staff article. And let's make sure that there isn't anything inconsistent in the two documents they need to match up, because if they don't and you find yourself maybe in a medical staff hearing or in some type of litigation and you have these two uh, documents that are conflicting that's just going to be a dream for a plaintiff's lawyer Ab- I think
0: absolutely I mean it'd be like a dog running after a steak at that point and I think when um, you, you do medical staff bylaws you're usually working with the medical staff leadership so it might be re- required to go to a different part of the organization maybe the board chair the executive committee certainly top-level management and explain to them it's very important to take a look at the corporate bylaws either to sync them up the medical staff, as you say, Lauren, or just to make sure they're current.
1: Yeah, and sometimes there isn't a lot in those medical staff articles, Dan, but other times I've seen when I've looked at corporate bylaws, there's a lot, and it's really legislating a lot of the stuff that's typically in the medical staff governance documents and that there are conflicts. So, um, again, it really doesn't need to be a lot in that article, um, and it's still, though, a very important piece that you need to uh, that you need to look at, and that's often one of the most overlooked pieces in the corporate bylaws, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and you raise a very good point, Lauren, that the more detail you get in something, the more likely it is to be inconsistent with something else.
1: Absolutely. So
0: you know, we're a big believer in the KISS principle: keep it simple, stupid. But uh, that especially applies to documents that. Could create a problem for you legally, whether you're in litigation or with the regulators. Now, in terms of the places you look for what needs to be in corporate bylaws, separate apart from the medical staff bylaws, which Lauren's going to get into in some detail in a little bit, the first place you look is your state corporation statute. Now, most hospitals are nonprofit tax-exempt organizations, so we'll talk. In terms of what a nonprofit hospital would look for, but a lot of this would be in a business corporation law that would apply to a for profit uh, company as well. First of all, uh, nonprofit corporations will often define the relationship between a member of the corporation, which is the analog of a shareholder in a for profit corporation, and the board of directors or board of trustees of the corporation. Not all hospitals have membership. In fact, Uh, The old model of having a lot of people from the community pay five bucks to join as a member is pretty much out the window, although occasionally you'll see some hospitals that still have that as a vestige of something that happened in the late 1800s. However, a lot of uh, multi-hospital systems will define the parent company as the sole corporate member of the hospital, and you want to make sure that whatever reserve powers that member has are consistent with what the understanding is when that organization came into the larger health care system. Another thing you may want to take a look at if you have no life and have some t- spare time, <laughs> 2017, the New Hampshire Attorney General's Office, Charitable Trust Division, wrote a very incisive opinion about the fiduciary duties of members of a corporation, of a nonprofit corporation, which essentially say they have fiduciary duties just like directors do. And when you talk about fiduciary duties, usually... Those are defined in some detail in the corporate statutes. You want to make sure that any reference to fiduciary responsibility in your corporate bylaws is consistent with your state corporation law. The same goes for provisions about indemnification. There's a misconception out there that you can wave a magic wand and say, everybody's indemnified for everything if you're acting on our behalf. That hopefully would be true if you follow the rules in the indemnification provisions in the state corporation laws, but they usually require a finding either uh, before the fact but more likely after the fact that the individual has acted in good faith and in the best interest of the corporation, or at least not opposed to the interest of the corporation to be eligible for indemnification. So in the interim, the corporate bylaws will usually provide for the ability of the board to Advance litigation costs or attorney's fees or defense costs if somebody is sued, a board member, a manager, a medical staff leader. But you got to make sure that that language is consistent with your state corporation law. The same goes for limitation of liability. A lot of state nonprofit laws will limit the liability of individual directors as long as they're not acting in bad faith or engaged in willful misconduct or gross negligence. But there's a kicker in a lot of those laws that you have to say that in your bylaws, and you have to track exactly what is in the law to get that protection, which is in addition to the protection that the Federal Volunteer Protection Act gives for volunteer directors and nonprofits. Uh, you might want to take a look at recent amendments to your bylaws talking about virtual meetings. Uh, the old bylaws or the old state corporation laws would usually say you can um, call in by telephone as long as everybody can hear everybody else and speak and be heard by everybody else. Uh, but now they a lot of the laws have been expanded as a result of the pandemic and the advent of Zoom technology to include all sorts of video technology hookups as well. Uh, state licensure regulations and the Medicare conditions of participation will also lay out a lot of detail in terms of the specific duties of directors or officers of a hospital. They usually refer to that group, not as the board of directors or trustees, but as the quote-unquote governing body, so that you need to reference the Medicare conditions of participation in your state licensure rules, which can vary widely from state to state, uh, in terms of making sure that your bylaws are consistent with the requirements of that particular source of authority, but also to make sure that the um, duties are spelled out in whatever detail you need to have. Uh, in Pennsylvania, for instance, there's some one-off requirements in the state licensure laws. For instance, they require the board of a hospital to have at least one meeting a year that is open for attendance by the general public. They don't have to participate, and you can put on a dumb show of saying how great you are and then adjourn the meeting, but you still have to have that in your bylaws, and when you get surveyed, you have to have a uh, open meeting.
1: Yeah, Dan, what other place you want to check in, in addition to, you know, your state law and the Medicare conditions of participation, you also want to check the accreditation standards, whatever accrediting body you use, whether it's the Joint Commission, uh, DMV, hfap they oftentimes have provisions that set forth requirements uh, for the governing board. So you want to make sure that your corporate bylaws are consistent with what is in those provisions.
0: And that's a good point, Lauren, because oftentimes you not only have to look in the governance section of those accreditation standards, but also the medical staff section to make sure that anything that is discussed in terms of the board's relationship to the medical staff is there. And state licensure laws, the Medicare COPs, and accreditation standards apply across the board, not just to nonprofits. Now there's one other source of authority you need to look at for a nonprofit tax-exempt corporation. And that's guidance given by the Internal Revenue Service for 501c3 organizations. For instance, we always recommend that corporate bylaws of a nonprofit exempt hospital have language to define so-called independent directors because you have to identify those individuals on your 990 informational return. And if you didn't know how you're defining them, you wouldn't know who to put on the return. And independent directors are basically someone who has no economic connection with the organization, and their relatives don't either, so you need to define it that way, but that becomes even more important when you're talking about approving executive compensation or any other transaction with a board member in order to take advantage of the rebuttable presumption test that's in the regulations uh, under the excess benefit transaction rules in Section 4958 uh, of the tax code. So, make sure you can define the independent directors and you know who they are, and you have a process where only independent directors will serve on a committee like an executive compensation committee that has authority to approve the CEO's compensation and, in many cases, physician compensation as well. You may also want to reference Section 501R of the tax code and the regulations under that for. Community health needs analyses. It's a good idea, not required, but a good idea to say you're going to do that in your corporate bylaws, but also the billing and collection rules, which then brings us, Lauren, to the medical staff article, which is oftentimes the jumping off point once a hospital has completed a review and revision of its medical staff documents, which we help with all the time, but maybe you can explain the kind Absolutely. of things you'd uh, suggest to them at that point.
1: Absolutely, Dan. And um, and it should be, as you said, it should be a jumping off point. And it oftentimes does get neglected and forgotten about. So at the end of any project, again, I like to say, let's pull out that article now, that medical staff article in your corporate bylaws document. And again, not a lot needs to be in there. As you said, Dan, when you have too much detail in that document, then you run the risk of actually having provisions in it that conflict with the medical staff bylaws. But there are a couple of key provisions, and I just want to run through them real quickly, that I think should, um, should be in there. One is I think you want to spell out the relationship between um, the hospital and the medical staff because i think there is some confusion sometimes that the medical staff is really separate and apart from the corporate organization so i i think it's important to spell out in those documents that the medical staff really is functioning as an integral part of the hospital corporation in accordance with its governance documents and when we say medical staff governance documents we're talking about the medical staff bylaws documents and policies and procedures. And I think too, as part of clearly defining this relationship, you want to make it clear that the medical staff is really accountable to the board for the quality of medical care that's being provided. Because at the end of the day, the board is on the hook for everything that happens in the hospital, but the board does not have the medical expertise to oversee and manage the quality of care that's provided. And they delegate that responsibility to the medical staff because they do have that expertise. So, again, I think it's important to set that relationship out very clearly in that article.
0: And I think the Medicare conditions of participation say exactly what you said, Lauren. The medical staff is accountable to the governing body for the quality of care and for carrying out all the medical staff responsibilities in those medical staff governing documents.
1: Now, in terms of the duties and responsibilities of the medical staff and how medical staff members are appointed and granted clinical privileges, you don't want to include anything and any type of detail in the medical staff article about this, but you do just want to mention um, that their duties and responsibilities in the process by which they're appointed and granted clinical privileges that that is set forth in the medical staff governance documents, that 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 is how those things are going to be handled. So you just want to make a cross-reference there and not get into a lot of detail. And I also think it's important to include a statement that if the board disagrees with any decision or recommendation that the medical staff makes regarding an applicant or another individual on the medical staff, that if there is this disagreement, that the board will appoint members to meet with members of the medical staff leadership first to discuss the disagreement. And oftentimes what I see, Dan, is this comes in the form of what is called a joint conference committee. That's how these matters are frequently
0: dealt with. What about things like exclusive contracts, or other arrangements, or um, call pay arrangements? Is that something that ought to be addressed in the... uh, Exclusive contracts
1: or arrangements, yes. Dan, they absolutely need to be addressed because of the effect that they could have on applicants or existing members of the medical staff. And when we say exclusive arrangements, we're talking about when the board decides to enter into an exclusive contract with a group of providers to provide services in a certain specialty, or maybe the board decides to pass a resolution and to limit those individuals who can provide services in a specialty, maybe to only those physicians that are employed. So it's kind of a semi-exclusive arrangement. But those situations need to be addressed because they can get tricky. And again, they can get tricky with respect to new applicants in those specialties where an exclusive arrangement has been entered into, or they can get tricky with respect to existing providers. And what I mean by that is this. Let's say The board is to decide to enter into an exclusive arrangement in a specialty, and it's the first time they've decided um, to do it. And there are going to be certain practitioners then that maybe aren't part of that exclusive arrangement. So you want to make it clear, when that decision is made, what's going to happen to the clinical privileges of those people who aren't part of the exclusive arrangement? And- you want to make it clear that those people aren't going to be eligible to continue to exercise their clinical privileges and that there is no right to a hearing. So you want to be proactive and address that up front and with respect to new applicants you want to say no one can request somebody who is requesting clinical privileges in an area that is subject to an exclusive arrangement those individuals will not be eligible to request those privileges so you want to be proactive and address what is going to happen up front to Clinical privileges or the request for clinical privileges in an area in which an exclusive arrangement has been put in place. And I
0: think that's a very important point you made, Lauren, about not being eligible to exercise clinical privileges as opposed to being kicked off the medical staff.
1: Right. There's no right to, it's not a revocation, Dan, or a termination. So there is no right to a hearing uh, under the medical staff bylaws in those situations. And you and
0: I have been involved in a lot of litigation where that became an issue. And if you'd explain to the court, there's plenty of case law that supports that. We're not doing something that would impact or besmirch the individual's character by saying that they're incompetent or misbehaved. You're simply saying we made a business decision based on our needs and the needs of the hospital and the community and the patients to limit who can exercise those clinical privileges? That was a very good point.
1: And another to, to follow up on that: not only there's no right to a hearing or an appeal, it's also not something that comes up oftentimes. Is this something? So now I'm not eligible. Is this going to get reported to the national practitioner data bank? And no, it is not, because again, this is an administrative business decision. It's there's been no subjective determination about somebody's qualifications or their clinical competence uh, or conduct. Again, it's a a business decision. So no reporting at the state state level or to the National Practitioner Data
0: Bank. So we could probably go on for quite a while with a lot of the detail, but we wanted to give you a flavor of what you ought to be looking at in your corporate bylaws. So if you haven't looked at your corporate bylaws in a while or you just did a little drive-by at the last board meeting and didn't really pay attention to them, Take a little time and take a look at what we just talked about and see if you need to update your corporate bylaws. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us on the podcast today and I'd like to thank Lauren uh, since this is her first of many podcasts.
1: <laughs> thank you.